0: Welcome to the Not-A-Cast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome back to our coverage of House of the Dragon. Today we are talking about Season 1, Episode 9, The Green Council. And I've been kind of repeating myself in the intros to these last few episodes. I've just been saying this is the best one yet, or this is the most emotional one yet. So I'll, I'll change it up a little bit this week. I did not like this one quite as much as the last few, mostly because I think the uh, the Egon fetch quest in the middle took up too much of the episode, and there were also some moments that felt, I don't know, like obvious or exaggerated in a way that reminded me of some of Game of Thrones' low points. Overall, though, still great stuff. It really, it, it did its job, which was to ramp up the scope, ramp up the scale. It made you feel the acceleration of events beyond anyone's control. It's that that sense there is no turning back now. And you definitely, if you haven't felt it by the end, you definitely feel
1: it at the end. Yeah, I agree. I don't think this was as strong as the previous two episodes, though I think I am a little higher on this one than most. And I think that's because I did specifically like the Egon Fetch Quest as something that appeals to my specific sensibilities. But we can get there, and perhaps me and Emmett can fight about something finally. And good, it's been getting a little too chummy around here for my taste. (laughs) Exactly. We need something to fight about.
0: It's not even that. It'll just be one of us gets bored. Like, we'll get to the next Davos chapter, and I'll have, like, 15 solid pages to talk about Stannis, and you'll be just, like, looking for the exit, or just (laughs) letting the cat sub
1: in, you know, take take that seat for you. I'm going to do my Edric Storm routine and just leave the island and leave you there. That'll teach me a lesson. So this episode starts in Stunning. Ooh, stunning. Fashion, the red keep at the hour of the wolf. Empty, quiet. Ramin Jawadi hits us with a little piano, which the old show primed us to recognize as shit's about to go down. Uh The opening shot is of the Iron Throne. Make no mistake, that's the heart of darkness here, the center of gravity that all our players orbit around.
0: Oh, that's that's a perfect way of looking at it. And yeah, now that I think about it, of course, we don't even see Aegon sit the Iron Throne in, that, in this episode. We don't ever get that far. No one is on the Iron Throne in this episode. That is definitely deliberate. And yeah, I loved this opening. It's so beautifully shot. It's mostly silent. Obviously, there's the music, but there's not much dialogue going on and it definitely reminds me specifically of the winds of winter of of season 6 episode 10 how that started with just the quiet patient shots and the piano music going only that one had it was very uh vibrant in terms of the color palette like you had the emphasis on people's clothing and like you know uh, all the different colors of the the great septa baylor in that episode and this it looks like everything is covered in a layer of ash which is perfectly fitting because we just saw the death of viserys and we see a, a a little kid walk out. Who I was, I wondered at first if that might be one of uh, one of the members of the family, like that. Whether that might be one of Egon's kids. Um, but of course, coming back to it on rewatch, I was like, ah, they're doing the setup right here in plain sight. That this is the this is the spy network in the Red Keep doing its job.
1: Yeah, there's some great Foley work as this boy makes his way to Talia. Little birds chirping in the distance, and rats and mice squeaking. The euphemisms given to our various messengers worked in as part of the folio work as we see the web come to life. You can see the cross-agendas in the network too, how the threads don't just go left and right, but up and down. Talia does relay the news of Viserys' death to Alicent, but then in her bedchambers, she moves a candelabra to the window and lights all the candles, a secret signal to the white worm, and the candelabra itself will be a visual centerpiece to Larys and Allison's scene later on. Alicent is despondent at the news. Truly, I think a combination of legit sadness coupled with the enormity of Viserys' last words to upend the planned succession of Rhaenyra in favor of Aegon. As she relays this news to her father Otto, she is visibly picking at her nails once again. Yeah,
0: Olivia Cook is is killing it throughout this whole episode. I definitely think my favorite performance in the episode is hers. You get that that outburst right here, that emotional reaction. The uh, yeah, I think genuine tears and and sorrow for Viserys, and then it's immediately, you see her shut it down, you see her repress it, and she has to go off and do her duty, and uh, Talia, I get the sense that she knows right away she's in trouble as soon as Allison tells her, you have to stay here, she's like, ah, uh, that's 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 not a good sign, and she of course immediately moves to the window, lights the candle that we then see uh, from a distance, and then there's this great dissolve to the castle scene from a great distance, but... The light of the candles are still in the same place as they were in the previous shot. It's the it's like a it's a reverse of what they do at the start of Citizen Kane, where you see Xanadu, you see his vast palatial estate from a distance with just a little light in the window, and then you dissolve to a closer shot, and it's the light is there, obviously now bigger, but it's in the same spot in the frame. So they're kind of doing that in reverse as you back away from the Red Keep. Again, that's something that only really fully makes sense when you come back to it on rewatch. And then yeah, Alicent goes off to tell Otto, and of course Otto's first response is, "Who knows." Immediately working on shutting down information, immediately recognizing that that the the news of the King's death is this valuable currency, it's this advantage they have over Rhaenyra for now. It's not going to last for long. I was kind of disappointed they didn't go the full on hide the body like they did in Fire and Blood. That was one of my favorite parts of Fire and Blood. Maybe it wouldn't have come off as realistic or they just wanted to compress the timeline, but there is still that same sense of we got to move while we are the only ones who know about this before Rhaenyra and Daemon find out. And that leads pretty naturally into the council scene. And this is probably my favorite part of the episode, specifically the part where... Otto and his allies just immediately spring into action and reveal they have been waiting for this moment all along, like months or maybe years. It's not clear how long they've been getting this ready in the <laughs> background, but clearly for a while, because Otto's like, oh, okay, everyone, it's just master plan, version Omega, just like we rehearsed. Jasper Wilde, you have the minutes from our last super secret meeting. And this it just totally blindsides Alicent along with the audience. So it really grounds us in her perspective. And it fits these cold, scheming characters that they wouldn't feel any torment, any real grief for Viserys, not even a moment of indecision, unlike Alicent. And while they're happy to have her on board, it's clear they don't care about why. They don't care about the prophecy and so on, even if she explained it to all of them and not just Otto, because they were ready to do it without her. And you can see it all written on Olivia Cook's face. Again, great performance by her. You see the shock, the anger, the dread, and maybe the first signs of regret. That as righteous as she thinks this is, coming away from her husband's deathbed, the means of making it happen are unworthy, which is going to apply especially to Aegon himself.
1: Yeah, I think Olivia Cook does a tremendous job this episode. If I was in charge of Emmy's submissions, this would probably be the submission I would make for her performance. And yeah, I love how this council scene starts, which this might be my favorite bit, especially how it opens. Tyland Lannister comes in with a jape. It's so early, am I right, guys? What, did Dorne get invaded? He says with a big (laughs) smile, and it cuts to Jasper Wilde also smirking. And then the camera cuts to the head of the table. Otto and Kristen Cole have the most solemn looks on their face, while Allison looks crestfallen. A council of fools and flatterers, I heard once said. So much of the story about A Song of Ice and Fire is about the performance of power, and a key component of that is crafting the narrative. It's something I will come back to in this episode's finish. But here, we see that immediately in Otto's eulogy, it's now Viserys the Peaceful. You know, that name we've been calling him for 30 years now. Surely, if Viserys the Peaceful asked for something on his deathbed, it would be wise and true to honor that. And I do love that the minute Otto stops talking, thunder rubbles off in the distance. But yes, as you say, the immediate turn by Otto once Tylan says, "Uh, Our long-laid plans is a stroke of comedic timing. His solemn, eulogizing tone is gone. It's back to boardroom CEO voice. He's entirely out of frame for this, too, so all we see is Olivia's head finally look at her father all like, what the fuck? <laughs> While Otto waxes on about securing the gold cloaks and the treasury, Allison looks around at the table dumbfounded. She's now realizing which are the fools and which are the fl- flatterers. Only Sir Harold Westerling and dear old Beesbury are visibly shaken by the turn of the tide. Jasper Wilde's defense, we would not sully you with these black schemes when Allison asks how they had this all planned, is pure infantilization of Allison, presumably along gender lines. Don't worry your pretty little head about it, or she has the weak heart of a woman, you can imagine Joffrey Baratheon's line coming out of their mouths. This is her son they are talking about, little shit as he is. And at some level, deep down, I think Allison does know to crown him is to kill him, something that came real close to happening in episode's end. Yeah, she's wondering if she just might have painted a target on her son's back. And the,
0: the way the counselors respond, as you're saying, it's just this brutal reminder that no one takes Allison seriously, that no one thinks of this as being her story. She had this really agonizing decision to make, and now events are just overtaking her. And yet we know from fire and blood that she's still going to wind up blamed for all of it. She gets none of the agency and all of the responsibility. That just keeps being Allison's lot in life.
1: But let's do some real Beesbury chat here for a second. Our mm-hmm. kindly, somewhat doddering Master of Coin <laughs> gets his time to shine, though the star that burns twice as bright burns half as long. Okay, bad analogy. He did have a pretty full life. He is vocally upset that a coup was fomented under the Queen and his nose. We've already done this song and dance for 15-some years or thereabouts. The secession is decided. The absolute righteousness Bill Patterson spits here is great, revealing a vigor to Lord Beesbury previously unseen, made more affecting by his previous doddering. Shout out to director Claire Kilner here, who does something I absolutely love. As Beesbury accuses the table of... Regicide, whether one of them or all of them, it makes no matter, we see Kristen Cole step into frame behind Beesbury, with the soft focus. Just that few moments of dread before Kristen does the Joker's pencil magic trick from the Dark Knight, shoving Beesbury's face into the table and killing him on his small council ball. Perhaps an accidental murder, but definitely more force than needed from Officer Cole.
0: Yeah, I loved the way that was done. It reminded me of, of slasher movies. All those great moments when you see the killer just lurking in the back of the frame or in a little corner out of focus. Particularly the, the best example of that is from Halloween, like when Michael just like slowly gets up in the background or that amazing shot when it's just like a little, a little blue light goes off and just shows you Michael's face. Director John Carpenter was a master of using every inch of cinemascope framing to his advantage and I think you can see that the influence here and you can easily imagine a different version where you don't see Kristen there and he just suddenly bursts into frame and slams the guy's head down and it's more like a jump scare and I think that would work fine but I think this is way more effective because you you see him and it's just like he's a ghost and you feel that dread settle in the pit of your stomach. And then you have that that horrible moment where you know what's coming, but Beesbury doesn't. And he has this final moment of ignorance and you just you can't do anything to warn him. And I, I love that kind of things in, in horror movies. And I think it translates here really well.
1: Uh, I think that's a great point about the jump scare or even just the suddenness of what they could have done with that. Because if you think of scenes like, say, Jon Snow being saved in Craster's Keep or the Hound saving Sansa or... Holland Reed saving Ned Stark in the flashback those are action sequences and things are happening really fast so someone who gets stabbed kind of like unexpectedly from behind kind of fits that but what's happening here at yeah. the Green Council is very deliberate it's planned out it's not made to be like people hastily doing things the impression we're getting here is that everything is kind of premeditated so playing with dread instead of a jump scare feels very of a piece with that to me to extend the cop metaphor as well, I like Otto saying we finish our business here first before removing Lord Beesbury's body. While the matter is the secession and not the murder of Beesbury, this feels like all the cops getting their stories in order before going public with any news. Westerling draws steel on Cole, and shockingly, Allison actually backs Harold here. There was no insult to me, and Kristen immediately sheets his sword. The immediate obedience to Alicent portends a potential revelation later in this episode. And it's interesting to think about how
0: this is done differently in Fire and Blood. That you have, you have Kristen, he he goes for Beesbury's throat, right? In Fire and Blood, I'm not misremembering I, I this. I think, he,
1: like, th- uh, throat slash and thrown out a window, does that sound right?
0: And that, obviously, it's still brutal, still awful, but there's a certain... Professionalism to how that's being done as an assassin, which is very different than just grabbing the dude's head and yelling at him as you slam it on the table. And it's that's very effective because it's also what happened with Joffrey Lawnmouth. Like, this is this is now the thing for Kristen Cole that his violence is so wild and brutal and obviously out of control that it's basically impossible to make it look badass. I think about Jamie in the show describing Barristan as a painter who only used red. And then I look at, for, by contrast, I look at this just pure animal rage. Just this, like, this 76-year-old man who has just reminded you of how old he is, getting shoved down headfirst by this armored man in his prime. And that's, that's the shock in this room, that Kristen just exposed what's really going on beneath the protocols and self-justifications, the kind of thing that get Westerling to lower his blade as the temperature calms down. This is what they're talking about doing, cold-blooded murder, and they are planning on doing it to people more powerful than poor old Lord Beesbury.
1: Oh yes, that gets us to the elephant in the room, who is not in the room, that is Rhaenyra. Though Otto has intent to allow Team Rhaenyra to bend the knee, he knows they will not, and the plan in the end is to kill them. It feels not unlike the Robert small council scene where he wants Danny killed now that she's pregnant. Otto calls it unsavory in the same way Renly and Pycelle talk about it to Ned. Or while he even seems to be in agreement, though knowing what we do about him, I think we wonder if his whole heart is in it. Kind of like Varys at that very same scene, he can't object to the assassination of Daenerys because that gives away his plots and his loyalties, so he too says, yeah, that's good business. Otto orders Westerling to go and take out Rhaenyra, be quick and clean about it. Westerling resigns on the spot and exits stage instead. I gotta say, I really like how they gardened Westerling into something else here, who died in the books long before this point due to timeline differences. Keeping him around makes a lot of sense, especially just, I want to see more of the actor. Also, bad move by Otto. He perha- he's perhaps been the most adept political player so far in this game, but he fails a basic rule of sports or team management. Know your personnel. KYP. The proud and honorable Lord Commander Westerling is not the guy you order to do this sort of work for a myriad of reasons.
0: It's very true. And when I was watching that, part of me thought that it was just... I-, I couldn't believe that was really Otto's plan A for dealing with Rhaenyra and Damon is to send Westerling for that reason. Maybe, maybe I'm giving Otto too much credit, but maybe he was just reacting in the room to get Westerling away from Kristen Cole, because they almost just killed each other. So he's like, all right, I gotta defuse this situation by any means necessary. Let me kill two birds with one stone here, get Westerling away from this hothead my daughter keeps around, and, and also take care of my opponents. But, I mean, the air is, is thick with tension, not only because violence can break out, but also because the legitimacy of power, which separates sanctioned violence from the unsanctioned kind, has been called into question. And I think it's it's really well-written the way Westerling puts it. I think it really sums up what's going on. And he says he serves the king, and so he doesn't have any service to perform until there is one. And it's interesting, because that's not an outright defiance of the Greens, a la Lord Beesbury. It's Westerling admitting that he needs someone to tell him what to do in this situation. So he's making a choice, but only in the name of a life where he doesn't have to do things like make choices. And I think that fits all of them. They're all pretending to be following a clear precedent when really they're making it up as they go.
1: We come next to Helena, where else? Doing a lovely insect cross-stitch as she and her handmaidens watch their kids play when Alicent and Otto barge in in search of Aegon. Otto marches out when he's not there, and Alicent relays the news to her daughter. But not before Helena repeats her prophecy from last time. There is a beast beneath the boards.
0: And she's also teaching the kids the first lesson of the Game of Thrones. It's musical chairs. What one person has, the other one will want. Reducing it to the most basic components like that, something a child can understand, just emphasizes how much these adults are being driven by primal impulses, particularly greed and fear, that they can then cover up with more high-minded appeals. I was thinking about Stannis versus Renly throughout this episode, because that dynamic is a clear echo of the dance— You've got the king who held the peace dying, Robert versus Viserys. You have the conflict over the illegitimacy of his heirs. You have Rhaenyra and her kids versus Cersei and her kids. You have Stannis on Dragonstone and he wears black. You have Renly backed by the Reach and he wears green. There's a, there's a lot of parallels there. It's not one-to-one, but there's a lot. And one thing I love about Stannis versus Renly is that even though they both have arguments to make against the other, what their fight is really about is the pettiest brotherly bullshit imaginable. You got the best toys. Yeah, I did. So there, and Catelyn just watches and realizes with horror that the only two adults claiming the Iron Throne are less mature than Bran and Rickon. So I think that I think you can see that when when Helena just kind of breaks it down to the kids here, it's like this is how it really works at kind
1: of a child level, and then we make up stuff on top of that. Aemon then arrives, the present brother, the younger, the one who's less reluctant to turn down rule. Remind you of anyone? Like Mm -hmm. say Renly. Anyway, Allison sends Sir Kristen to find Aegon and bring him back to her, but not her father. Amon volunteers to go too, despite Allison's protestations. Cole assents though, because he needs some help. Blink and you'll miss Allison whispering to Kristen, everything you feel for me, dot dot dot, as your queen, which really turns those mental gears. People have theorized Allison and Kristen Cole may have a relationship, and this is a strong hint in that direction. Otto, meanwhile sends Sir Eric and Sir Eric to retrieve Aegon and demand they bring Aegon directly to Otto, not the Queen. So the inverse of Cole and Aemon's plans. Meanwhile, Raynis realizes she's been locked in her guest quarters in the Red Keep. The only clue that she has that some shit has gone on is seeing all the servants and maidens handmaids move to the dungeons, presided over by Lord Larys. So we have two sets of two going on a fetch quest for Aegon. The Erics for Otto, and Coleman for Alicent. I think why I like the scene more than most is that it has spy genre beats to it. Not like James Bond, but more John Le Carré. Or John Le Carr. Going undercover, blending into the local population, extracting intelligence from the locals. I like how the deeper into the city they go, further on the hunt for the missing would-be king, things get more and more depraved. It's like doing Heart of Darkness in an urban setting. First, we search in brothels, which is where fire and blood says Agon was found, but the madame says the prince's interests are far more debased than just that. Then we go to a children's fight club, where they even file the kid's teeth and sharpen their nails so they claw and bite each other. And the place has several little kids that appear to be Agon's bastards. Lovely. <laughs> and then where do they end up finding the king? Why, hiding underneath the sept. It's almost comedic that after all of those locations, it's in the place of worship that he's found but I think what I liked about much of this fest quest is the small interactions between the hunters. Cole saying all women are queens is honestly the funniest line this entire season, lest we forget him calling Grey Nera the C-word a few episodes back. Aemond goes full Renly, even if Aegon isn't really a Stannis type here. He is the one fit to rule. He is meant for this role, not his brother, who might as well be dead or on his way halfway around the world. If they ever come to find Aemond, he means to be found. And I also like this as an introduction to the Erics. Not that they are necessarily rich characters, but their discussions about Aegon's fitness externalize the conversation for the audience, which also allowing us to better know these two ahead of their roles they play in the dance. I absolutely get the criticisms that this plot thread did take up a lot of the episode, especially when the end result, corralling Aegon, is a known quantity. But I really like the tension and the character work done, which again, appeals perhaps to my sensibilities more than others. And I appreciate how the hunt coincides with what's going on at the Red Keep with Otto and Lord Caswell, which we'll get to in a minute. As the jaws slowly close around Egon, they also close around the Red Keep. I want to once again highlight Jawadi's piano score here, the instrumentation really working well with the tension. Sir Eric and Arik find their ways into the child fighting pits mentioned earlier, and it truly is a sight to behold, or wince at. Kids that look no older than 10 years old punching and wailing on each other as grown men and even older kids cheer in war. It's here that we learn of the White Worm and Lady Masaria spies who have found the twins guards and tell them that Sir Otto can learn the king's whereabouts if he meets with her master. All great points for
0: sure. And I I love what you were saying about this as a more kind of espionage cloak and dagger literally kind of story than than we usually get in this universe. And I do really like the the exploration of the seedy underbelly of King's Landing because that is something we hear about more than we see in both A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones. And I do like, as you were saying, the kind of the, the levels almost, almost like they're descending into hell. Like each each stage is a little different. Each stage is a little worse. And the Fight Club for Kids, that expands on what Helena was saying about everyone fighting for what the other person has. Well, what if there was nothing ever to gain and the fight was the whole point? What if the fighters weren't even choosing it and were raised to hate each other for the adults to profit? If that sounds like what's happening in the dance, that's because it's supposed to. No wonder Egon hangs out here. This is probably what his childhood felt like to him. It's a perfect little illustration of how bleak things have gotten. And it also sets up Egon not wanting the throne at all. Part of why I think the episode lost me a little here is I was confused at first as to why this was a big deal at all. Like, who cares whether Otto or Alicent finds Egon first? Isn't the end result the same, namely making him the new king? Now, Allison did clarify later that the issue on the table for her here was the treatment of Rhaenyra. I I still don't really get how who finds Egon first really settles that question. Like, Otto still has access to Egon, even though Aemond and Kristen Cole walked away with him. And I find it hard to believe that if Eric and Arik brought Egon to Otto, that the latter would really bar Allison from talking to her son. I was watching the behind the scenes about it and Ryan Condal was saying that they were going for a, a kind of Hitchcock style suspense in this episode. And I really like it. I think for most of the episode that works, that you have this ticking clock element. I think the pacing gets a little slack by spending so long looking for Egon. And the other thing Condal said is that they wanted to kind of drum up a mystery about Egon by, by drawing this out. Like, who is he? What's he into? They have Eric and Eric kind of talking about that. And I don't know, maybe this is just me, but I don't really think there's any mystery to Egon at all. <laughs> He's just a bottomless pit of entitlement and need. We saw that in the previous episodes, and we see it again in this one. And I think that characterization works fine. It works well. Like, it's a great joke that you have all this labor and conspiracy that goes into putting him on the throne, all of Allison's agony, the stuff about the prophecy. And then here he is. There's just nothing to the man himself. I actually think that's great. Since something I really did love about this part of the episode was Aemon talking about how he studied the blade <laughs> while Egon was off having sex. <laughs> Fucking hilarious. Absolutely my favorite character. Because on one hand, he is right. Egon has no foundation for his rule. He has no sense of what came before. He has no sense of how to contribute to what's coming next. No thoughts. Head empty. Aemon at least has ideas. On the other hand, those ideas end up amounting to, let's burn everything. And anyway, the political problem for Eamond isn't even what he says, but how he says it. Tis I who studied history and philosophy. That <laughs> is just whiny and pretentious. Like Otto might like the sound of that, but nobody else will. Eamond talks like he's rehearsed every line a dozen times in his head, which he probably has. I think he just spends too much time by himself to win over a crowd. They were talking to that woman who I didn't know until after the episode, but was the drama coach for the actor who played Kristen Cole. So that was a cool little reunion between the two of them. She talked about how nervous she was, but I thought that was great. And there's a little intimation that she was or knows the woman Amon uh, slept with when he was a boy. And Amon just kind of reacts kind of coldly to that. You get the sense Amon just doesn't spend much time with people, so he doesn't really. So he always talks like he's reading a speech he wrote beforehand, and that's just so he's never gonna. He's gonna always gonna have difficulties winning over the crowd. It's like if Martin Prince from The Simpsons was an actual prince. Call
1: on me, teacher. I'm ever so smart. <laughs> Oh man, I need a picture of Amond wearing a shirt that says Wayne Computers on it now. <laughs> Otto calls all the lords and highborns present in the Red Keep to the throne room to have them all swear obeisance to King Aegon. A couple lords and ladies, including Lady Fell, refuse to bend the knee, and high tower men escort them to the dungeons, which causes the re- remaining defiant lords, namely Lord Coswell, to bend the knee, proclaiming, long live the king. Laris eyes the lord from the balcony above. Lord Coswell, after this folly, makes for his horse and hopes to ride out of King's Landing before the jaws close. But just as he's about to leave, the guards pull Alan Coswell from his horse and drag him to the hand. Otto thanks Laris, who tipped him off, though not without broaching the subject of the late hours he spends with Alicent. Laris plays it cool. It can all be for your
0: benefit, too. I like that Laris doesn't even try to deny the implication there, he just says doesn't matter you stand to gain too and the scene just cuts away And auto looking intrigued i thought it was too bad we don't get to see him expose his hairy hobbit feet to laris but maybe maybe we'll save that for a later episode it's a tough balancing act even for a player like laris it's not just blacks versus greens here it's competing factions within the greens as we saw with the fetch quest you can't stay neutral even lord caswell's hesitation is enough to get him noticed eventually he bends the knee but laris saw him hesitate so he keeps an eye on him if he had, if he just bent the knee right away, Larys wouldn't know to watch for him, and he might have gotten away. It was, it was it was a very little thing, but that's all it takes.
1: And it returns to that motif we called out earlier in the season of people watching other people within the House of the Dragon. Yep, yep. So we finally get an adaptation of the scene of Tywin Lannister's stinking corpse, but in lieu of Tywin, <laughs> it's King Viserys. He'll do. (laughs) Alicent watches the Silent Sisters do their work in preparing the king's body, but the handkerchief to her nose tells us that it fucking reeks in there. Gotta hope those candles are scented. She rests Viserys' crown over his body, with intentions we will later see to use Aegon the Conqueror's crown for her own son, as Viserys dreamed about that in his prophecy.
0: I love this little scene just for the lighting. It's just really gorgeous. You get these expressive use of shadows and soft focus, and it gives it this little, this kind of dreamy intimacy, like nothing else that's going on is real just for a minute. It's just the two of them one last time.
1: In Reynus's bedchambers, Alicent finally comes to apologize for the quote-unquote lack of ceremony and how Reynus was interred, and Reynus is quick on the uptake. Viserys is dead, and Alicent has machinations on the Iron Throne. And Alicent wants Rhaenys on her side. She tells her half her ga- grandchildren are not her own, her son is cuckolded, your husband abandoned you. You have no need to be loyal to Rainier side. And then Alicent uses what she thinks is her ace in the hole. Rhaenys, you should have been queen, not just by blood, but by temperament. You would have ruled far better than your cousin ever did. But all they can do now is guide the men that do to veer them away from their violent delights with their violent ends. And if Rhaenys' dragon is on team green, it may be enough to force Rhaenyra to the table instead of the battlefield. This scene is really, really similar to a Thrones invented scene where Olena and Cersei talk about how it's preposterous that men have all the power and all they can do is to try and keep them from their graves, though they seem to yearn for it. This is also the same scene in which Joffrey spoils the end of the show, so just be careful if you go back to it. Reynas at this point forcibly pushes back, throwing down Allison's hands, which she placed on her. She speaks of freedom for women, but all she does is in the service of patriarchy, if not the men in her life specifically. She's not arguing for liberation, but for a window in her prison cell. And that is all Allison is offering Reynas here. Not freedom, but a good view from her jail cell. She'd be conscripted to Team Green in some manner or another, and her freedom and ability to live out the rest of her life, educate on Driftmark, all of that, would flow from the throne and the Greens, not from her own agency or her husband's.
0: Yeah, this was a great scene. Other than the the early council scene, this was probably my favorite in the episode. And again, we get this interplay between brutal power plays and the flowery euphemistic language people use to describe those power plays. Like, I love Grannis' opening line. Like, even though she's she's angry, she's barely holding back her anger, look at the words she chooses. I will do you the considerable courtesy of assuming there's a good reason for this. Like, that is such a a beat around the bush, overly deferential way of saying, why the fuck have you locked me in my room? (laughs) But that's how she was brought up to talk, especially to other people who are powerful, people whose situation she's trying to figure out. Like the way she doesn't just says, I will do you the courtesy. She says, I will do you the considerable courtesy. That's how she gets across her anger by saying, this is a huge favor I'm doing for you. And you see it also in how Alison talks that she says she apologizes for the lack of ceremony. That's a key choice of words. So much pomp and circumstance in this episode, but beneath it, as Reina says, is usurping the Iron Throne. And Reyna herself, of course, will cut right through the ceremony later in the episode. Now, Alicent is right in a lot of what she chooses to say here. Rhaenyra has not exactly been an ideal ally to House Valerian. Her kids are not laners. Rhaenys has been left on her own to manage an increasingly complicated and dangerous situation. And yeah, when Alicent said Viserys would have been happier as a country lord, just left alone with his little model of Valeria, I was nodding along. Like, yes, Viserys would have been a very happy man if he had zero responsibilities. But we already saw in the last episode that when the chips are down, Rhaenys prefers Rhaenyra and Daemon as allies to the High Towers. I think there are many reasons why, Bela and Rhaena being chief among them. They do have Valyrian blood, and also Daemons, making it impossible for Rhaenys to turn against Team Black without turning against her own grandchildren. I also think Rhaenys just doesn't like the High Towers personally. <laughs> you get that sense that it's just the, the grasping obsequiousness, the bullshit self-justifications... The lack of the kind of tangible accomplishments of which Corliss is so proud. They're just annoying. It's the reason Damon had to keep doing the Picard face pinch in the last episode. It's just dealing with Alicent and Otto after a while, it just just gets on their nerves. Above all, it's Alicent's hypocrisy that really grinds Reynus' gears. The way Alicent says Reynus should have been in charge, even as she is holding Reynus hostage... The way Alicent appeals to Rhaenys in terms of gender solidarity, even while denying another woman's claim to the Iron Throne, in the name of her manifestly unfit son. Rhaenys really cuts to the heart of it. Alicent does not want to be free, because it terrifies her. She doesn't want to deal with her desire for the Iron Throne, just as she doesn't want to deal with her desire for Rhaenyra. And on some level, they're the same thing. That's a life I could live outside propriety, outside what my father has prescribed for me. Even as Alicent chafes against her bonds, to break them entirely would be to turn her back on every decision she's ever made. To escape bondage, the first step is to admit you're a slave, and Alicent is unwilling to do that. Instead, as Rhaenys says, Alicent just wants a window in her prison cell. She wants to be able to at least look at that which she denies herself. And that is endless torment. There is no way to be happy living like that,
1: but I think Alicent fears herself. More than she fears her cage. Next, Otto meets with Lady Misaria, who reveals herself to be the real thing, giving her condolences about the king, private information that she somehow has acquired thanks to her web of spies. She offers the prince's location in exchange for the fight club for children being disbanded. The crown has either allowed or ignored the savagery against the kids. That is her price for Aegon. I still struggle with Sonoya Mizuno's accent work here, which is not her natural one, though I didn't find it as rough as the last time she had a lot of spoken lines. But maybe I'm just a hopeless leftist who is easily moved by using your bargaining chip for good, for the people, especially the lower class. These high lords literally do not even pretend to care about the small folk, just stomping on them as they play their Game of Thrones. So at least emotionally, it struck a chord that this was her price for the prince. There is no power but what the people allow you to take is a line I enjoy immensely. We talk about the performance of power so much, about the trappings and floppy ears and all that, the shadows on the wall. But like, say, in Plato's Cave, someone has to observe that shadow. That legitimacy of power must be absorbed unless you plan on rolling in like fascists with subjugation. And I like that Eric sharing a glance at this too, after both were pretty disgusted with what they saw down in the fighting pits – I may be way off base here, but for some reason I think they might do something more with these twins than just say they are on opposite sides of the war. You don't say? Nah, nothing in the
0: source material suggests that. Not not at all. And this, this makes for an interesting contrast with the previous scene, because here you have a woman operating on her own, having moved on from the man who used her as a pawn. She looks at Aegon not as a king, or a son, or a prophesied savior, or even as an enemy, but just as a bargaining chip a way she can improve material conditions down in Flea Bottom. And it's a good move. I agree. It's the best move she can make. But as inspiring as her line is about how you only have the power people allow you to take, we're going to see Reynus deliver a crushing counter-argument later. Once you have
1: that power, you can use it against
0: the people, and they might not be able to stop you.
1: Or you might not even know that you're using it against the people or are just <laughs> indifferent to it wholesale.
0: Very true. Very true.
1: Aegon, in the end, is tucked away underneath a candle display in the Septic King's Landing, I think the very one that young Alicent and Rhaenyra prayed to earlier in the season, and even when he's found, Aegon tries to make a break for it. But when they finally corral him and take him outside of the Sept, Cole and Amond are there waiting for them. Arik with an A stands and observes, while Eric with an E takes on Kristen Cole, while Amond tackles his older brother. Arik flees before anyone can track him down. Aegon is literally giggling as his younger brother wrestles him down. When Aemon says they plan to make him king, Aegon spits in his face. This kid, in his own words, is not fit to rule. He has no taste for duty. At least the little shit is fully aware he's a little shit. And when he says he could flee and let Aemon be king, the last bit left unsaid, you can see the avarice in Aemon's one eye. But Cole is there to corral Aegon, and back to the Red Keep we go.
0: Like I was saying earlier, this, the fight that's set up here between Kristen Cole and the twin seems a little forced to me in that, like, the stakes are which high tower gets the kid back. There's not that much of a difference, but then again, that might be the point. Just like the kids in the fight club, just like Egon himself, these knights have to fight each other for no real reason. Nothing to be gained. And even if this scene isn't exactly tense in terms of the stakes, it is very funny. (laughs) I love the gag of Aegon just being dumped unceremoniously under the candles. Beneath the imagery of prophecy and power, all that's waiting for you is just this asshole. And the key to how they're writing Aegon is that, as you were saying, he's all too aware of his own uselessness. When he hears they paid a price to get him back, his first question is, why? Why'd you bother? I'm worthless and I know it. Then he tries to run for it, which really had me laughing. No, no, don't make me king. Anything but that, please. As one of the twins says, uh, people kill each other for that power. It's bitterly ironic that the one guy who gets it doesn't want it. Aemond is the one who wants it. When Egon says he's not suited for the crown, Aemond says, yeah, you'll get no argument from me. And yet there is still... There is still some affection there, I feel like, in that Aemond knows Egon enough to try to to know where to find him. And that even in that moment he's not like, Yes, I hate you, brother, for taking the crown that should be mine. He's just like, yeah, yeah, he'll get no argument from me. Like he's just he's exasperated by his brother, but he's also used to that. And that's just that's just kind of their relationship. And so yeah, when Egon says he'll sail away to never never to be found, I think you can see multiple emotions cross you and Mitchell's face. There is that desire to seize the throne for himself. But there's also this this pity, or at least this disgust at the position his brother is in, where it's just like, that's what a wretched position to be in that you're the one who's getting crowned and that's the last thing you want.
1: Our hearts were never won. Allison throws afterwards at her father as they try to assuage their conflict this episode. Allison, coming off her chat with Raynus, is very aware that she is just a piece to move by her father specifically, and she was always a piece to be moved before she even knew she was a piece. This is all she's known, the Game of Thrones, and even though she's queen, she never had a chance to cultivate her own desires, her own future. The most powerful woman in the kingdoms, a tool and a piece to the lesser men behind the scenes. Alicent reveals she has Aegon, and she will offer peace to Rhaenyra. She must not return, but she can perhaps be given peace terms that will avoid war, which, as a narrator, I don't think so. Allison is doing a little bit of doublespeak here as she is trying to separate herself from her father and drawing a line that she is not like him. At the same time, she's doing probably exactly what he would do. Give Aegon Aegon the Conqueror's crown, give him Blackfire the Sword of the King, and let's do this crowning in the dragon pit. Basically, all the trappings of Targaryen power, except one. Which
0: one? Oh, the dragons? Nah, unimportant. Least important part of that whole thing. And I do like that Otto kind of calls out how pointless it was to have two fetch quests. He says it was just, it was a game, it was a contest. And for Allison the stakes were simply to demonstrate that she could, in fact, act on her own without her dad. She's shaken after the scene with Raynus. you can tell. She doesn't even trust herself. She says, like, everything I want is what you told me to want. How do I know what's me anymore? She feels hollow, and she seizes on her squeamishness, to use her dad's word, about killing Rhaenyra as her last genuine emotion. This is something dad didn't tell me to feel, I know, because he disagrees. And for all that Otto says, this is just a sacrifice they have to make, this is what ruling is, Alicent. He couldn't even bring himself to say it out loud at the meeting, he had to wait for Alicent to do it. Otto just has to stick with his beloved euphemisms, the performance of power so he can keep telling himself he's a refined, learned man, not a brute. He wants to purge all emotion from the game, hence his scorn for Alicent having mercy for her childhood companion, as he puts it. Putting a, putting a lot of meaning beneath those words. Then again, the scene ends with Otto comparing Alicent to her mother. Otto can't get rid of his own emotions. By repressing them, he loses control over them. He keeps them in the shadows where they influence him without him even knowing it. It's very Jungian, which fits the image of Shadows as repressed selves that George uses throughout the story. Otto is right, though, that there really is no peace Rhaenyra and her allies are going to find worthy of them, especially when the justification is, Viserys told me he wanted to crown Aegon, hmm and there was no one else in the room, and then he died. Like, Beesbury and Rhaenys have already shot that down. No way Rhaenyra and Daemon are going to accept that.
1: Back in Alicent's bedchambers, Larys Strong is there to meet her. Alicent seems annoyed. It's late, she says, not unlike when Viserys called her to his bedchambers a few episodes back. She feels alone, isolated, and she just wants to sleep. Big mood. Laris offers to tell Alicent how Otto initially found Aegon first, before Alicent's men overtook the twins. Laris gets noticeably comfortable, as we learn this man has a foot fetish, for Alicent or in general. He stares at her stockinged feet as he starts revealing the web of spies that work in and out of the Red Keep. When Allison presses him for who a specific spider might be, Laris just says, um, which Allison knows to then remove her stockings. Laris then informs her that Talia is one of these spies. And finally, in exchange for masturbating to her feet, Laris offers to take over the web of spies while Allison looks away, incredibly unsettled and annoyed. She's still a piece to Laris as well, just not on a game board, but just as an object to be adored or masturbated to. This is a tricky scene to discuss, and I, I want to be you know clear here. I am an able-bodied person, and my I'm a novice when it comes to disability justice. Um, the scene clearly squares up Laris' own disability, his clubfoot, before revealing his foot fetish. This falls into a trope where a character is fully defined by their disability, that it's all consuming in their wants and desires, which hollows them out instead of building robust interiority. That is not to say that people with disabilities may not have fetishes as such, but it's murky territory when you're already playing with a disabled person as one of your big bads, at least in the show, at, at least as the show has portrayed Laris Strong. But at the same time, I think there's value in showing sexuality in disabled people. This is something I just talked about with Chloe and Eliana on Girls Gone Canon. Oftentimes when we deal with people with disabilities, we have a tendency to infantilize them or treat them as asexual beings because we can't imagine what kind of sexual desire someone without an able body would have. And I think it's actually rich to give disabled people or people with various disabilities or who are not fully able bodied a full interior sexuality. And we see that uh, it's. It's easy to be hard on this character, but it's also worth noting that, you know, characters like Tyrion Lannister and Bran Stark, who are not portrayed as good guys, are also part of George Martin's oeuvre of characters that he's talking about these themes with. Um, I think I'd look a little more askance at this kind of thing if it was Laris was the only disabled character overall in these works. And I also think there's value in showing fetishes and expanding the sexual language that we see in this show and television broadly. Sexuality and expression thereof is wide and diverse, but even in much of HBO programming, sexuality is limited to coupling and occasional orgies and then sometimes sexual violence and rape. I do like showing some actual kink and men specifically with desires that challenge the general puritanical approach to sexu- sexuality in pop culture writ large. but again, you know, it is a tricky and murky situation with this character specifically, so I'm open to a wide variety of reactions to this scene. As always, this kind of thing cuts across
0: multiple kinds of conversations at once, talking about the show in context with, uh, with regards to representation of disabled people as a whole, or within George's oeuvre, or within popular shows, or just within the show itself, or how does it, and then you, that's even before you get to how it relates between the fictional characters that we're talking about. I totally agree about the need to show off a wide range of sexuality, because I think that still is just, is not done. at a a large mainstream level. It tends to be pretty narrow how sex is presented. And I think you can see that in terms of how people respond to sex scenes in media. Like a lot of the negative reaction to this scene has been pretty superficial. A lot of it has come down to, "ew, foot fetishes are gross. Or the old, you know, depiction as endorsement idea. I understand the argument that assigning this particular fetish to Laris is reductive. Like everything about Laris has to revolve around feet because he's the feet guy. (laughs) I also think it's true that people with disabilities often develop sexual tastes that relate in some way to their disabilities, in the same way that people who go through traumatic events keep trying to recreate it, even unconsciously. So often, I think the execution of a moment like this comes down to tone. I think this scene, in terms of tone, kind of got caught in the middle for me. Like, they were trying to do a leering, shocking Game of Thrones-style scene but also do it in a more restrained and thoughtful way than D&D would do. And it kind of ended up being neither. Like, it's not funny and ridiculous, nor is it really a sincere exploration of character.
1: And I'd also say, like... As two men, we're basically kind of looking at this from Laris's point of view, and there's a whole layer That's of Allison true. experiencing this. And one thing we've come back to already in the two months I've been on this pod is how much we relish complex adult driven art that makes us really think. And we have a scene here that sits at the middle of sexuality, disability, patriarchy. And here we are all trying to kind of make sense of it what feels right, what makes us feel off. And even when shows miss with stuff like this, I'm glad that some of it is there to actually talk about and pick apart, because then I think everyone who's having this conversation in good faith, like we are now, and we might be in our group chats and whatnot, we're all learning and expanding our horizons a little bit about disability, about patriarchy, about sexuality through those discussions. And I think that's valuable, regardless if the show was kind of just middling in the scene per se. So the following night in the Red Keep is far more pensive than the previous we see Aegon being fed to prepare for his big day, while Otto, Amond and Alicent all brood individually, the, l- the last of whom is still furiously picking at her fingernails. We then cut to Rhaenys, where one of the Erics barges into her room with a cloak. He's going to break her out of the Red Keep. As they walk through the main courtyard, Lord Coswell's body is shown hanging from the balcony, this is a stark contrast to the pilot episode, where a young Rainier and Allison walk through this bustling courtyard filled with minor lords and servants. Now, it's just a hanged corpse. It feels like the Riverlands in A Song of Ice and Fire. When we first pass through them in A Game of Thrones, there are towns and inns and keeps full of life. When Brienne comes through in A Feast for Crows, especially in Brienne 6, that life is replaced with trees full of hanged bodies. Reynas and her Kingsguard protector get caught up in a crowd that's moving ferociously towards the dragon pit, and they get separated. Right before that, however, Reynas says she needs to get her dragon, the Red Queen Melis, but uh, her Kingsguard protector says it's too dangerous to do that. Just one
0: more guy telling a woman what to do in this episode. albeit with the best of intentions in this case. And there's a great sense of the walls closing in during this scene. You got the camera panning back and forth as they realize, uh-oh, can't go down there. Can't go down there. There's no way out. And getting stampeded by a crowd like this has always been a fear of mine. And I think they capture it well here. That that sudden momentum that sweeps you off your feet and you worry you might not be in control of yourself anymore.
1: And it almost feels like the tide has turned in favor of Aegon and they're being swept away with it. There's nothing they can do to push back against That's it. That's great. Mm-hmm. Alicent and Aegon are in a carriage to the dragon pit themselves. And though Aegon is a total fucking shit... He's not wrong. Viserys never liked him. (laughs) He had 20 years to name Aegon his heir. Please don't make up some bullshit that at the last minute he recanted and wanted me placed on the Iron Throne. Alicent's real goal here, though, is to convince Aegon not to kill Rhaenyra, which Otto called out earlier as her childhood companion and or crush. Aegon is too distracted by the Valyrian steel dagger, though. Do you love me?" he asks, and Allison, just completely fed up at this point, calls him an imbecile.
0: Great scene with Allison just showing off how how much her son gets under her nerves precisely by doing nothing. Like, you know, to have the decency to look grateful. She says, "Do you know what has been done to give you this day?" "Well, yeah, but none of it was done by him nor really even for him, and he knows it." I was thinking watching this like Egon might be so much happier if he was just like 10% dumber. <laughs> Instead, he's just smart enough to realize that he's playing a role, and nothing more. As he says, if Viserys really wanted to name him the heir, he had 20 years to do it, and didn't. All Egon can do when Allison talks about the prophecy is laugh, and who can blame him? It sounds as ridiculous to him as Alicent's story did to Beesbury and Rhaenys. Alicent tries to tell him to handle Rhaenyra peacefully. This is the whole reason she went through that farce with the fetch quest. But Egon interrupts, Do you love me? It's a heartfelt question it's all he really cares about but allison's response is perfect you imbecile would i be doing this if i didn't love you like she could have sat back and just let otto handle things including handling Egon himself but she's she's only in this carriage at all because she does love this stupid kid
1: so the ending of episode 9 of season 1 of house of the dragon plays very much like balor episode 9 of season 1 of game of thrones Bells and crowds call people to one of the main landmarks of King's Landing, built on one of the three hills that gives the city its topography. Up on the stage, Otto addresses the gathered small folk to announce the death of Viserys the Peaceful, that Aegon will take the kingship in his place. This is met with mild applause, as the gold cloaks create a path for Aegon through the crowd, swords raised, trumpeteers playing the king's arrival music diegetically here, which I found fun the blades falling as Egon walks through them, a visual symbol of all the swords that will fall on heads in battle in the wars to come. It's a gauntlet of steel, the swords
0: snapping down behind you. No retreating from the path you're on, too late to turn back now. Even though Egon is the one taking power, a new king to lead us, as his grandfather Otto says,
1: all of this has been arranged for him, it's a stage managed image. Aegon is fully wrapped in the Targaryen trappings, the three-headed sigil on his chest, the Conqueror's crown, Blackfire, and Viserys' dagger at his hip. Helena looks on her husband, brother, warily, and the crowd seems a bit unsure about this too. Only coughs and the shuffling of feet at first can be heard, as Criston Cole crowns the king. Aemon watches the crowning with big eyes, or a big eye, while Helena looks away. King Aegon, second of his name, rises, and his entire family and council bow to him. King Aegon now faces the crowd, who are silent at first, but Cole reiterates, Aegon the king! And people start cheering. They start cheering loudly, even, for this young man who never wanted this. But the ovation is loud, intoxicating, and you can see that in Aegon's eyes. Hey, this ain't so bad... Along with the cheers he's never heard before,
0: it's those silent nods Egon gets from everyone else on the stage with him. Really good pacing here. They take the time to show Egon meeting all of their eyes, one by one. And I think it's, it was a good call to do Otto last, because that's maybe the most important. He's the puppet master who kicked Egon out of fury at finding him drunk in a previous episode. He's the standard Egon has never been able to live up to. Now he is bowing to Egon. And Egon finally gets what this means to be king. No one kicks him ever again. I could even tell Grandpa what to do. And that, that nervous bar mitzvah face gives way to a big smile. And Egon looks sincerely happy for what must be
1: the first time in years. He pulls out Blackfire and thrusts it into the air. His incredibly skinny arm hoisting the sword of the Conqueror. <laughs> and boy, I cannot get Tyrion for a Storm of Swords, which we just covered, out of my mind. A little too much sword for Joffrey, Tyrion says, which rings in my ears as we see this young blonde shit come to embrace his right to rule. He basks in it for just a moment. There's a beast beneath the boards, and it stirs when you put a sword in the wrong king's hands. From the bowels of the dragon pit emerges Mailees, with a fully armored rainus on her back, stomping through the crowds of small folk. Again, even for the good and cool ones, the fate of the small folk is ignored by those who play the Game of Thrones. And quick side note: I loved Helena looking on Rhaenys with admiration in the moment. Alicent and Team Green brace for death, but instead of Dracarys, Malus takes wings and leaves the dragon pit on dragon back. The doors close as we fade to black. So a lot of consternation about the scene. Of course, the Team Black partisans wanted the Greens to be roasted right there and maybe it seems confusing to others who think the war could be ended right here. My own reading is slightly different. First, I want to consider Raynus's agency in all this, because it ties back to her chat with Allison earlier. For all Allison says, in the end, she's still subjected to the patriarchy, to men in power, she's still dancing to someone else's tune. When she tries to make peace with Rhaenys, Allison is essentially just giving her a room with a view, not freedom, like we talked about earlier. But if she roasts Team Green right then and there, well, she's effectively declaring for Team Rhaenyra, and that doesn't make Rhaenys any more free either. As Allison laid out, her daughter is dead and her son cuckolded, Rhaenys has no love for either Daemon or Rhaenyra. Binding herself to the Blacks is trading one Jailer for another, even if Rhaenyra may be kinder and more welcoming to Rhaenys. I also think it's a big ass to commit both kingslaying and kinslaying all in one motion. And keep in mind, kinslaying is a trauma she's still working through given what she suspects of Rhaenyra and Daemon with regards to Laenor. On a personal level, it might be a line she won't cross, but also, she may have intended to roast them at first, but then stop short for any of the reasons mentioned above. I'm also not positive killing Team Green stops the war from happening even though killing 3 dragon riders on Team Green would be a huge military dub. Murdering the king, killing the two most important high towers is at the very least going to mobilize Old Town and maybe the Reach in full. Plus we know half the kingdom aren't looking for a queen to rule them anyways. They want a man. Maybe I have the wrong intuition here, but I do think this would also not go over well. What Rhaenys achieved to me was a destruction of Otto's perfectly constructed narrative, that Aegon is king and the crowd cheered and was accepted. That creates a powerful story for King Aegon II. Rhaenys upends that wholesale, and now the coronation of Aegon is not positive, bloodless affair, but a divisive, bloody one. I do think there's important symbolism at play here too, though Rhaenys is played triumphantly, Her smashing the small folk is not ignored at all. It's a microcosm of the line Teora Tolent says in the Aryan The Winds of Winter sample chapter. And everywhere the dragons danced, the people died. When I was
0: rewatching it, the line that jumped out to me from this episode was in the scene between Alicent and Reynas where Alicent says a a true queen counts the cost to her people. And Reynas does not do that here. Like, you could imagine her waiting until the pit was empty to make her escape to get out with her dragon. And she doesn't do it because the point, as you're saying, is to make a scene. And I think you said it perfectly earlier that, that Reynus is indifferent to the damage this causes. It's not like she's she's going out of her way to kill people. It's not like that's what she wants to do. But if that's the cost for doing what she wants to do, then she will happily pay it. It's all about putting on a show, right? What really makes this work for me is that she's playing to two audiences. To us, as well as the Greens. I don't know about you, but I had a huge smile on my face as soon as I realized what was happening. It's that jolt of the unexpected and the extraordinary. Look at that big fucking dragon tearing everything up. Look at the badass on Dragonback in her armor emerging from the smoke like a Kurosawa samurai. Look at how this entire drawn-out, built-up scene has been remade in a matter of moments. That's great television. And then you remember what it is you're looking at. A princess massacring hundreds of peasants, all to make a point to her fellow royalty. You hear them scream, and you watch them die. And you do so knowing that none of it means anything to Rhaenys, nor to Alicent, nor to Egon. It's an extended version of that moment in episode 3, when the rando cheering on Damon and begging <laughs> to be saved just got squished by a dragon paw instead, and then Damon immediately moved on. Like George Carlin says, it's a big club and you ain't in it, and the people who are in the big club do not care about you, at all. The irony is so strong, that Reynus restrains herself from wiping out the Greens, here and now, her enemies, but doesn't show a hint of mercy to the people she kills along the way, who are not her enemies at all. They had no choice but to be here. The Greens forced these people into this room, only for it to become a killing floor for the other side. Honestly, I couldn't sum up the war better than that. There are echoes here of, once again, Stannis and Renly, the crowd cheering for Aegon too as they did for Renly, only for the shadow baby to show up in place of the dragon and turn all the cheers to shrieks of horror. Even more so, this feels to me like the adaptation of Danny versus Young Griff we never got to see. Varys basically created Young Griff in a lab to get people to cheer for him, but Danny will claim what is hers with fire and blood. Human beings are collateral damage in that process. They want to be left alone, Jorah says, but they never will be. And there's a reason Rhaenys is wreathed in dust and smoke before emerging in her armor. I mean, mostly it's just because it looks really cool. (laughs) But it also emphasizes that in that in-between moment when she's still in the smoke, she could be anyone. She could be Stannis. She could be Danny. Above all, she could be Rhaenyra herself, because this is what the Black Queen will do to avoid becoming another queen who never was. As Otto said, no one ever claimed the throne without sacrifice. We're supposed to have both reactions, I think. We're supposed to cheer and then flinch. Because that proves that it works, even on us. The spectacle of fearsome acts.
1: You can't look away. It's an age of wonder and terror, I've heard someone Mm -hmm. say many times. (laughs) Guilty. A couple final notes on the scene. It pays off a couple of the prophecies we've heard this season from Viserys and Helena. Maely's is the beast beneath the boards, and Viserys spoke of crowning his son with Aegon's crown and the dragon's roaring. All of that imagery is made flesh in this scene. Most of all, the definite point to me is the trappings of power versus actual power. Aegon may be dressed up like the Conqueror himself, but the real Targaryen power is not in swords and crowns, it's in dragons. It's the only symbol he didn't project in his coronation, and Rhaenys shows how in the end, it's the only power that matters. And lastly, from a meta level, I want to come back to the comparison to the Baylor scene with Arya watching her dad. This scene with Rhaenys almost plays out as Arya 5 wish fulfillment or power fantasy. What if Arya had been able to do something to stop her father's execution, and spat in the face of the crowd cheering for Ned's head? Rhaenys essentially does that here. She sends the crowds running, she calls into question the legitimacy of this boyish king, more so in claim than blood per se, and no one dies up on that stage. Kinda a neat little wrinkle to me. So that I think is gonna wrap us up for our episode on the Green Council,
0: Season 1, Episode 9 of House of the Dragon. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. Helps people find us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash where our patrons get early access, exclusive episodes, and a bunch more benefits. You can follow us on Twitter at ASOIaf or shoot us an email at notacastASOIAF at
1: gmail.com and you can find me at poorquentin on Twitter. And I'm Manu, also known as the Nuclear Bomb. We just wrapped up our coverage of The Rings of Power over at My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, but we are pivoting to cover and or the new Star Wars series in a series we're calling There and or Back Again, uh, which I think actually will be a great companion piece to the work Emmett's been doing on Star Wars because all that talk about ships named The Invisible Hand and George Lucas targeting capitalism absolutely are relevant to that show.
0: That is awesome. I can't wait to listen to this because, yeah, as much as rings of power even on its own was just a, not a very good show i think it really suffers in comparison to house of the dragon and to andor i've really been enjoying andor and this is someone who has been skeptical of disney star wars to put it politely but this one sucked me and has gotten better with each episode i can't wait to watch the rest of the season and can't wait to hear what would you guys come up with on it so we recently put out another a song of ice and fire episode our latest chapter by chapter episode on a storm of swords Tyrion four that's now available for everybody My own next Star Wars episode is going to be coming out uh, later this week. But for patrons, my uh, second episode on Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. In a couple weeks, I'll be jumping back into Lord of the Rings, wrapping up uh, Book 5, Chapter 8 of The Lord of the Rings, The Houses of Healing. And, of course, we'll be right back here next week to wrap up Season 1 of House of the Dragon. So thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week one more time for House of the Dragon.